0: Welcome to Amato's 5th Quarter Podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Dustin Fletcher,
1: Al Gryff. Travis Stalker. Everybody. Carson
0: Edwards. Brett Maher, Joe
1: Pickett, Kevin Brooks. Jack
0: Fitzpatrick. Joe McDonald, Sam Jacobs.
1: Calbert. Marcus Sir. James Sackelton, Andrew Vlahos, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Economides, Chris McEwen, Mike Ellis, Kevin Litch Matt Smith, Michael Brendan C, Jordan McMahon, Brett Matt Shanahan, Rupert Stapwell, Dusty Vakar, and Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgesky, Dom Tyson, Sergio
0: Fandey, Adam Snyder, Ricky Brick,
1: Rick Latson, Rod Jefferson
2: Toby Thurston, Scott Lee.
0: Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. They've
3: got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment, because the Eagle has landed for the Premiers in 2018.
0: There it is. Crispin. The Orange Order is restored.
3: It took just one season of transition. The Brisbane Roar premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The
0: 17-year drought is over. All hail the Kings. Sydney, the NBL 22 champions.
3: 3-0 sweep. They win it. 97 88
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, Episode 43. This is your host, Daniel. All is very good, very blessed, very grateful from this end. And as always, hoping all is well for you listening from your end. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by an Adelaide Crows original, Scott Lee. Some of the highlight moments throughout this conversation include playing soccer at an elite level as a junior... Making it onto Hawthorne's list in the 1980s, his relationship with one of the greatest coaches of all time, Alan Jeans, as well as sharing a locker room with arguably the greatest player of all time, Gary Ablett Sr. Winning two SANFL best and fairest with Central District, as well as being part of the Adelaide Crows' inaugural squad in 1991, Adelaide's first ever game round one 1991 against his old side Hawthorne. The pain of the 1993 preliminary final loss to Essendon after leading by seven goals at halftime, the Robert Shaw era at Adelaide, and playing with some future Crows champions in Andrew McLeod, Ben Hart, Mark Russotto, Kane Johnson, and Tyson Edwards to name a few. From 1991 to 1995, Scott Lee played 86 games for the Adelaide Crows. He scored 18 goals, played in three finals. And he was one of the great, reliable and durable defenders for the Crows in their early years. So we'll get it underway now. A5Q podcast episode 43 in conversation with Scott Lee.
3: 5
1: metres,
3: it is a very good kick by Scott
1: Lee as well. In towards Hodges, over his head, and chipping in to take the mark for Scott Lee. Scott Lee, was kick three, should get this.
0: Welcome back to Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, and today we've got an Adelaide Crows original. Scott Lee, thanks very much for taking the time to come on the show tonight.
2: How are you, i good.
0: Almost 30 years since you last played in the AFL. Where are you at in life now, and what have you been up to since you, you last played for the Crows? Where am I in life
2: now? Well, I'm 60 now, which is a bit of a shock for the system, hitting <laughs> 60 and realising how old you are. But I've been, still spent a few years playing footy after the Crows. Still spent another five years out of centrals, and then did some coaching at stencils for a few years and had a bit of coaching in the country for a while so footy wise and yeah doing bits and pieces out in the country and then last couple of years haven't done much been helping mate Gavin out at South Gawler a little bit the last couple of years but work's taken me away from that so just focusing on a bit of home stuff and working this year so been a busy time work's been busy
0: yeah beautiful and are you are you the sort of guy that would still watch the Crows do you still keep in touch with with the AFL or are you sort of moved on from that time
2: Oh, I still watch it. Don't go down there or have much involvement at all. Probably only get to two or three games a year sort of thing live. But if I'm in a position to watch it, yeah, I'll, I'll watch most of gross games.
0: Yeah, yeah, nice. Taking you back to the early days, originally from your lawn in Victoria, when did you start playing football and, and when, I suppose, was it that you realised you were possibly good enough to play at an elite level?
2: Well, I probably started a bit later. Since most of my early... Sporting days as a kid playing soccer. Started soccer about five years and then went right through till about secondary school. When I met a mate, made a mate at, in secondary school who was playing for a local club and then he convinced me to come out to play footy with him. That was about under fourteen, under sixteen, I reckon. So I spent a few years out there and then played a year of under eighteen at the local club, training with the seniors and that, and then spent another full pre-season with the seniors, and then got a few games when I was 17, 18 and had a pretty good year as the first year of senior football in the country and then got invited down to play under 19 at the Hawthorne sort of thing so did a pre-season there yeah I don't know whether it was a realisation or whether you're good enough you just my family was always a football family but I got into football a bit later you watch the VFL it was in those days our area it was Hawthorne, and so, yeah, you just looked at that thought. My brother actually went down to Hawthorne and did three pre-seasons while I was a younger. He was a bit older than me, so I was younger and was watching him do that, and I thought, well, you kind of get the drive from there, and ambition. Fortunate enough to get down and invite there. Spent three years at Hawthorne playing Marlon's at Hawthorne for three years, and then
0: he ended up at Central Districts in a platinum trade. Yeah, and just before we get into your Hawthorne days, what position did you play in soccer?
2: Mainly right back or centre back. Okay. When I started, oh look, I, I was a pretty good soccer player. There was a point there where I was always our district, as a young kid, like in the under tens and twelves, I was the, the association captain for a number of years. I got to a point where I was playing pretty good representative footy for my association. We did like trips interstate Tasmania and we did a carnival test knock and then someone said to me, oh, we're playing our area, our representative side, but we were going to play the Victorian representative side for under 12, I think it was. So our country side, our country representative side, we're going to play the, the Victorian representative side and someone said to me that if you uh, you're playing well enough sort of thing, you might get looked in on the Victorian side. Well, the weak people that game I was out kicking the footy at half time watching my brother in an under 16s game and some bloke pushed me over and I broke my collarbone so I never actually got to play in that game against the representative side so you never know how things turn out but anyway that's what happened so I started out as a a defender and then towards the end of my soccer before I fully transitioned over to football I was playing forward as well
0: kicking a few goals so you potentially could have made an elite level playing soccer.
2: I think I, I probably wouldn't have been good enough if I had the pathway. Like these days, you've got pathways and things like that. It's a lot more. How you know, I there's more exposure to the, the elite level, pathways. I think as, as a as a good country soccer player, I think if you're good enough, you get recognised and you get put through programs and all that sort of thing, which weren't there in my day.
0: Because back but then I, it was like the NSL, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, I reckon. So. As a small country town, there was no obvious exposure to pathways to the elite level. Like, obviously, the elite level, we used to watch, you know, as kids did watch, watch the FA Cup and all those sorts of things on TV. And Craig Johnson and Johnson and one of those blokes were going around a couple of Australian representatives. So, but there wasn't a big representation of, of Australians in that elite level. So, yeah, I don't know. Probably wasn't the exposure. Like I said, the pathways and those days.
0: Do you reckon your soccer career did anything to help you with football? Is there any um, correlation with the sports, you think?
2: Oh, you don't know whether it's natural or it's uh, something you pick up while you play soccer, but I think being a defender in soccer, you you focus a lot on the movement of the ball, but you're not manning up as such in soccer as you do in a one-on-one contest in football. So you're basically reading the play a lot as a defender in soccer, so I don't know whether that tends to do with the way I played my football later on because I tended, when I got to a higher level of football, when I was playing in the back pocket, that's kind of how I played, reading the ball more than worrying too much about my opponent sort of thing. So it's a good sport for kids because you can start at a lot younger age than you can with football and be playing the game as it's supposed to be played, whereas with Australian rules football, you kind of modified a lot until
0: you get to a higher level. Yeah, that's true. When you got to Hawthorne, so you spent a bit of time on Hawthorne's list and or plan for the reserves, at that time, was Alan Jeans still the coach, or was that Alan Joyce? No, Alan Jeans was the coach. He was still coach. There. Okay, so he was yeah. he's like well he still is considered one of the greatest coaches of all time. Four premierships, three at Hawthorne and one at St Kilda. Did you have much to do with him? Was there any sort of relationship there with, with Alan Jeans? Uh, yeah, I'd say
2: there was, but it probably wasn't good. My oh, first really? Inter- my first introduction to Alan Deans was I used to drive down to the under-19s training from Trove Valley three times a week to a three-hour round trip sort of thing, which was quite a bit in, in those days. probably, you know, probably wouldn't have been longer than that in those days. But anyway, I reckon I got my p plates so I got pulled over for probably going a little fast, trying to get the training on time. And through no doing of my own, the team manager, the under-19s, well, I told him about it, I said, Oh look there's an opportunity, might do my license sort of thing, because of this incident. And so he dragged me straight into the office with Alan Jeans and <laughs> introduced first my so my first introduction to Alan Jeans was from my team manager the other night and so, Oh the kid he's been caught speeding on the way to train that Alan Jeans was involved in the police force and he was basically asking Alan if
0: he could do anything
2: about it. So that was my first introduction to the senior coach of the football club. And from there, I don't think he, <laughs> he really <laughs> seen me in a glowing light. What a story. Which is a story I've probably never told publicly before. But, yeah, so there were times when I went okay sort of thing. Desmar, the reserve, coach case before Thornton was positive about me and kept trying to push my case to the senior level. But I don't think Genji ever really warmed to me <laughs>
0: Do you reckon it was because of that incident?
2: Oh, I was pretty, pretty, to be honest, I was pretty, I moved out of home when I was just turned 18, moved to Melbourne, lived with some friends and just, yeah, probably didn't represent myself as well as I could have at that stage in my career. And so I probably burned a couple of bridges, being a bit young and foolish. To be honest, this day and age, you wouldn't get away with some of the stuff we did in those days, but yeah, anyway, probably could have knuckled down and probably a bit more in my younger days at Hawthorne.
0: And you shared a locker room with the likes of Gary Ayres and Lee Matthews and Michael Tuck and Dermot Burden, Dippy and Imenico, Kennedy, Langdon. What was it like to be around those sort of guys and did you have any sort of relationship with these players?
2: Oh, yeah. i got pretty well most of those guys. For a kid who I barracked for Hawthorne all my life sort of thing and... From one year just playing country footy to the next year, at training doing one-on-one circle work with Lee Matthews, sort of thing. It's it wasn't intimidating to me, but you just it was just an amazing experience. You probably didn't appreciate at the time, but it was great to train with those guys. And I played a lot of football with the guys you mentioned. Easy he, he, uh, Dermot Burke was another coming through. He was the same age as me, coming through the under nineteen. Played a lot of reserves footy with Dermot. My first ever game at Hawthorne, I'd done all the pre-season with the under-19s. I'd played a couple of practice games with the reserves. And then when it came time for the first round of that year, that was 1982, I had a lot of injuries at the senior level. So my first game was I got put into the reserves and played on the wing. Because Desmo was coach and I think he thought I was OK. But well, I was on the wing if as had a mini on the half-back flank and Gary Ablett Senior was on the half-forward flank so it was when you look at it now about that was your first game at Hawthorne those sort of guys
0: yeah because a lot of people uh, forget that he did play for Hawthorne Gary Ablett Senior yeah he played one, yeah, so he one, one played, season the, yeah
2: yeah the year I was there he played I played a lot of reserves with Gary he was up and down
0: the did, reserves did you have much to do with him?
2: oh yeah he was a he was a really likeable bloke Gary pretty down-to-earth fella easy to talk to and, yeah he was the first game, like I said, I'd never met him before the first game, but he was the most vocal one in the change rooms before the game, trying to G everyone up and all that sort of thing, which is, when you look at it from an outsider, it's not something you probably expected from him, because he, he seemed so quiet on the field and all that sort of thing, but once in the change rooms before the game, he was the one that was doing all the talking and trying to G everyone up and all that sort of thing, So, but he was a he was just a freak athlete. Like he was just powerful and explosive. Like you do sprints, 50, 100-meter sprints, and he'd win by 20 or 30 meters sort of thing, everything. So it was just, yeah, was good to play with him, those sort of bikes.
0: Yeah, because I was going to ask, did you ever foresee at that stage? because this was before he established his reputation, did you ever foresee him being the player he was, over a 1,000 goals and one of oh, the greatest of all time?
2: Well, you don't think about those sort of heights, but you can see he had more than enough ability to be able to do because he could just do anything like he, he just you know, left right foot kick powerful strong could leave was explosively quick you know he was playing half back flank and half forward flank in those days and finally when he finally settled in his position at full forward it's he's a sort of player that's had the natural attributes it was hard to stop
0: are you disappointed that you never played an official game for Hawthorne
2: Oh yeah, you look at it and you think, yeah, you could have done better and knuckled down better because they were coming into a pretty successful period. I did play one night game, played a, a senior game, I played a good reserves game, and then they were. They used to play the escort cup games on Tuesday nights. You know, you're probably a bit young to remember them, but
0: is um, that like the Nab Cup?
2: Yeah, something like that. Yeah, except it was a it was a competition they used to play during the year on Tuesday nights, so it was like a knockout competition and so everybody would play someone else and then if you won you'd progress and they had those games on Tuesday night. It was called the Escort Cup. And so so when you hear Dumafra introduced as a five night five day premiership player and a five night time premiership player, that's what they're talking about. So right. it was just a knockout, it was like a, a bit like the FA Cup sort of thing, but just within the BFL itself and you just Kept progressing. So the game I played in was a semi-final against Collingwood, and I reckon I sat on the bench for about 95% of the game, <laughs> and I got on in the last three minutes of that game, only because someone I reckon told Genji that I've been sitting, because it was a pretty tight game, there was only a kick in it all night. I reckon I was on for about three to five minutes, and I reckon I got three messages from the runner to get closer to my man. So... That was a, that
0: was <laughs> Did, you get, anyway, to, did you, had, you get a touch? Did you get a touch? yeah, a couple. A
2: couple. Nothing, okay. Nothing, nothing, nothing too exciting, but, but we won anyway, so the boys went on. I think they went on the following week to win the win the grand final that comp.
0: And that was your one and, and that only was, that, that, appearance, was that
2: was my yeah. one and only experience that
0: senior first grade level at all for one, Alright everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccinos, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccinos is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, Contact us directly via phone at 0418 894 570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. So how did the SANFL come about after this? You moved back to SA after that time at Hawthorne. What prompted that move?
2: Well, I think after three years, at hawthorne the second year that was i think that 83 was the year i played that night game and was going okay but then 84 i probably didn't have as good a year as the year before yeah so genius they had a lot of good players coming through that was when they were just building a really good strong side so i think i was surplus to their needs and cowboy neil and Alan Jeans were good mates, obviously and they had an affiliation. Cowboy was coaching central districts at the time and Hawthorne were after that Johnny Patton. They said oh, I want to go over and have a look at this club so I went over there and just yeah, hooked up with cowboy Neil there and, and Central Districts and, and yeah, so that all panned out where actually Johnny stayed at Central Districts in 85, so 85 was my first year at Central District. Johnny Platt stayed at Central for that year, and then he went over to Hawthorne in 86, so I spent a year playing with Johnny in 85, and then there was a few more blokes come over from Hawthorne after that.
0: Yeah, because Hawthorne so was, and Central District have a decent relationship.
2: Yeah, oh, I did. That was where it stemmed from between Alan Jeans and Cowboy Neil, being the coach at Central. So there was a few players come over there was, I think... Rudy Mandamaker was the next one. Then there was Russell Shields, Chopper Hanley, Dave Flintoff. I think with a five of them that ended up at Central Districts, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you were a key member of Central Districts because you won two best and fairest. Do you think this time at the Bulldogs led the foundation for you making it onto Adelaide's list a couple of years later?
2: Oh, I think so, because I won the best and fairest at Centrals in 1990 and 87. 1990 leading into the Adelaide Crows, because that's when they formed in at the end of 1990. So, yeah, I oh, know, Neil Curley being Central's coach and then him having affiliation with going into the development of the Crows. He was kind of the recruiting man or part of the recruiting team down there. So he'd been my coach and got along pretty well. So I think Cornsey and the committee there at the time had decided to go down a more experienced path because they were somewhat restricted in their recruiting of younger players. Not like they have, like with the Gold Coast and Fremantle and these other teams coming in, getting the concessions they got with drafts and that. that didn't happen. We were pretty restricted with the drafts and that we could pick up. So they went down the experience track and that's probably why I got a bit of a gig with McDermott and Jarman and the like. Pretty much being in the same category as me as far as you know age group
0: and that. And the establishment of the Crows in the the early 90s, it seems as though like when the Crows were forming, it was a bit rushed and almost a bit disorganized. The first preseason, I have the understanding that there was a massive group of players for that first preseason, and every session or, or two, they were stripped to get the inaugural 1991 squad. How were you approached in terms of joining the, this new club and what was it like that first pre-season, you know, late 90, early 91, leading up to the first season?
2: Oh, it was obviously very new for everyone. And it, was, it was a large squad. I think it was like 80 players or something it was in the initial squad, something, some high number like that, and then just got whittled down, I suppose. So, yeah, no, it was exciting, No, I mean, it was organised. We had to understand that we were based at Footy Park, but you didn't have a club to stuff. There was no gym. The change rooms were pretty basic because it was just teams coming in, playing games and then going back to their home club. So the footy park wasn't set up as a football club itself. So they had to put in a makeshift gym and they had to put in administrative offices which were ADCO huts uh, that were there probably the whole time I was there. So it took time to build built the club up a a number of years, which is understandable, but financially there wasn't the money around that there is these days to build facilities, you know, for tens of millions of dollars, so the club did what they could with what they had, and yeah, so it was obviously going to be very successful right from the outset because of the public support that was shown to the team right from the word go.
0: Yeah, because that first, there wasn't even a name, it it was just the Adelaide Football Club.
2: Yeah, there was... It took a while from, for, I'm not sure how long, to establish the name of the Adelaide Crows. Well, there's all sorts of things around the Sharks and other bits and pieces, but it took a while to become established on, on your name and, your, and where what you were representing. But obviously, you're pulling together players from every club, you know, the best players for the competition and recruiting Tony McGuinness back and Mark Micken and all these sort of guys. So Bruce Lindner was another one. Yeah, from Geelong. From Geelong. But, yeah, it was obviously going to take a while to establish your identity. But, like I said, it was always going to be things that the fans were going to get behind right from the start. So, you're going to see that right from the word go from our first practice match we had against Essendon. It was just a trial game. And I think there was like 45,000 people there just for a trial game. I was a bit of a was Pretty exciting for the town.
0: And what about the first ever game so round one 1991 against ironically your old club hawthorne you won by 86 points and hawthorne won the premiership that year so they were a very very good team obviously and you smashed them by 86 points what are your memories from that night
1: hello everyone and welcome to the 1991 afl season and what a way to start under lights here at football park in south australia for the clash between Hawthorne and the Adelaide Crows. Quite incredible, they've been talking about it for days, saying it was a sellout to witness the opening game of the 91 season. Quickly run through the team, there will be some really interesting battles here. Lee in the back pocket as a former Hawthorne player, he'd like to do well, Dunstall and Warhorse, a really good battle. I think
3: Hawthorne should win Sandy, I hope it's a fantastic game, it's a great night for South Australian football and certainly the crowd will carry the 20 players in the Crows' jumpers and I think it will be a great game that we'll see tonight. A credit
1: to the public of South Australia, they've given the Crows full support. And here they go, to open the season, to open their AFL career and it's Negri who gets a mighty thump down towards the half forward line, the Crows through Pregenza. The Crows have really done everything right tonight. I I haven't found a cheat in the side. As the siren goes. Lidner will want to finish it off. He shoots towards goal. Oh, he finishes it off all right. A marvellous victory. And an 86-point win to the Adelaide Crows in their AFL home and away debut.
2: Oh, yeah, it was pretty exciting. Obviously going up against your old side was yeah, didn't really think about it too much, but we knew a long way out that we were gonna play in the first round, so we had plenty of time to think about it before the actual game itself and then yeah, when you go out there in that scenario you you've been given an opportunity to play in the first game ever for the club and you just wanted to play a good game and as it panned out, you know, everyone contributed and everything seemed to click. The crowd was right into it and yeah, we just managed to, to play well and Everything worked on the night, but as you said, they were a good team and it was all new to them, I suppose, playing in Adelaide against that crowd support. We just caught them on the hop, I suppose, surprised them a bit and managed to get a score on the board.
0: That first season was, when you look at it, even in today's standards, that is a brilliant first season. You finished ninth with a 10-12 record. First season in the competition, that is very, very good, and you were one of only three players along with... Rodney Maynard and Grantly Felke to play every game. Looking back at that first year, what does it mean to you to be a part of that inaugural Adelaide Crows team and to have played in their first ever season and game?
2: Something you look at, I suppose, you, you're proud of, but yeah, I tend not to
0: look too much into it. It was
2: just, yeah, it was just good fun, good time, and obviously having the opportunity to play at that level again. I was 27. I think at the time when the when the competition started, turned 28 that year. So at, at that age, you were pretty much thinking that sort of opportunity had, had passed you by. So to get an opportunity to play AFL and then be able to represent yourself in every game. Pretty exciting at the time. And yes, like I said, it was an opportunity that probably came my way with the establishment of the club that you thought was, was down and dusted. So... Yeah, it was good. It was exciting.
0: And what was your relationship like with Graeme Corns? He was the coach, of course. Corns, he was good. Yeah, I thought he was
2: a good coach. Communicated well, and you handwritten notes at the end of every game or the next week to see where your strengths and weaknesses were, and he did everything he could at the time, and did a pretty good job, I think, with a newly established team, with guys coming from all different clubs, as we said, and pulling everyone together and to get as close as we did in 93, he probably did pretty well. He's pretty successful, I feel, for his time with the cross.
0: Halftime break here on Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast and I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated and I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility, which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Another thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about. So 1993 is a very famous year for the Crows and, and still to this day gets spoken about. So it was the first time the club made the finals. It was the, the year of Tony Modra, 129 goals. You made the finals. You, you get into a preliminary final against Essendon. You're 42 points up at halftime. The Crows let it slip and, and Essendon go into the grand final. What are your memories of that day and what happened after halftime?
1: The Bombers come into this final as hot favourites. It's a team boasting a potent mix of youth and experience. The Baby Bombers are the Essendon youth, and these young men are enjoying a strong taste of finals football. Last Sunday, Essendon outplayed the most feared club in the league, the Eagles from Perth, to qualify for the final three. Adelaide, despite its loss to Carlton, is earning respect. The Crows have been put to the test in Melbourne during September and proved to be not only competitive, but dangerous as well. Today, there's no second chance. The loser goes home. The winner earns the privilege of coming back as a grand finalist. It's Essendon versus Adelaide in the 1993 preliminary final at the MCG.
3: Essendon to the right again. Essendon going without a traditional centre-half forward here. A vacant spot there. Wren won the first tap out of the centre. Denham's quick kick will probably get the job to tag McGuinness. I don't think they're going to have time to do it. And for the second time in this match, an Essendon player with a foot stuck in the centre of the ground in the Siren Sounds. Well, what a turn up this is. It's not over yet. There's a long way to go. But at half time, it's 6-6 to 12-12. You wouldn't read about it. But I kid you not, they were betting 4-1 to on Essendon this morning. And if this was a scoreline at half-time, be no betting if they were in front. It should never be, though, Bruce, because if you, I always believe if you've got 20 committed people on any given day in a game of Australian rules football, as long as you've got them committed, you're going to have a really good contest. And they started brilliantly, didn't they, Billy? Oh, the first quarter was terrific. Well, there's no doubting the ability, ability of this Adelaide sign. We've seen it every time they play in Adelaide. They can do it, so it's only probably probably been a mental thing coming to Melbourne and oh not dear. being yep. able to win they opened the floodgates a couple of weeks ago when they beat Hawthorne so they now believe in themselves. Double the score at halftime it's the Crows 84 to and 42. Set up back for Adelaide, very important possession Watson's got it,
1: Watson goes for goal, look at this, that's the goal! Style. Essendon are home in the preliminary final thanks to a goal kicked by Timmy Watson. Great. Shakes his head in disbelief After being seven goals in front at half
3: time Essendon has qualified for his 26th grand final And next week will be playing Carlton It's been one of the most remarkable games In the long history of this great game To be seven goals behind at half time That's it Dead set gone at half time No way out The door
2: was locked they got out of jail. Is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, good question. What happened after that? I'm not really sure. But anyway, I sat on the bench that day. So I'd actually copped against Carlton the week before. I'd copped a bit of a, a knock on the shoulder. And I was a bit sore against Carlton. I didn't play much in the game second half. And so during the week, the build-up, it kind of, it was good. And then my shoulder, it felt fine. It was as good as gold. And then, so, I think Corny uh, was a bit dubious about picking me. But anyway, he picked me. And in the first half, I sat on the bench. And then I came on. In the first contest I went for, I backed back into a pack. And someone came straight through and whacked me on the shoulder again. So And it kind of numbed my whole arm again. So, I'm not sure whether it was a nerve thing or, or what happened. But it affected me for the rest of the game. So, my personal game was pretty ordinary for that game. And in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have played. There's another thing I've probably never said publicly, but anyway, so the game itself was going pretty well. Like I spent most of the first half on the bench because it was going so well. So I had a few on and offs in the first half and was, was going okay. Still felt okay. And I felt like even though my child was sore, cool, I was capable of trying to contribute to that. So I played a bit on the second half But yeah, they just got a lot of momentum in the second half with Long playing well. I think Watson had a bit of a burst as well, sort of thing. I think I ended up playing on James Hurd. That was his his first year, I think. So, But they just got momentum up. and It was hard to stop. I'm not sure how the score panned out with goals. But I think they got a few early in the third quarter. And then just, I think we're still in front at three-quarter time. And then they just got on a bit of a roll again in the last quarter to the point where, yeah, just one of those things. They win the ball in the middle and get it forward and you're under the pump sort of thing. So, and then they just managed to get the screw on the board enough to get over the line. It was disappointing, obviously, because we were all always confident that if we could get over that game, if we'd gotten over that game, I thought we'd think we probably would have got on and won it. But anyway, that's history.
0: Yeah, because I've had a couple of ex-Crows players who played in that game, and they've said the same thing. You're 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 not the first person who said that that if if Crows had gotten into the grand final against Carlton, they would have won. I
2: mean, it's easy to say, but I just think that they were right for knocking over, and it, and it proved that it over. I think they were a bit underdone because they those days they played the second semi, like they had a week off, and they played the second semi against us. So I think went straight in and they were a bit underdone and they weren't convincing I don't think against us in that other final we played against. played them in. So I just felt like they no, uh, were ready to be beat, And we felt we were good enough to do it if we could get to them.
0: What was it like in the change rooms after the game? I imagine it was pretty solemn. What was the reaction like?
2: Oh obviously it was a bit not good just felt like an opportunity wasted sort of thing that we'd let
0: go. Just in that particular season, 1993, the Crows were everything to South Australians. What was it like just in SA?
2: No, I was a bit of buzzed about it, but I suppose I was still living down in the north, so I wasn't really in the city that much.
0: Whereabouts were you yeah, living at the time? Hillbank. Okay.
2: Just up the road from you. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. So, yeah, it, it was exciting, that, but it was more... Not so much out and about, but more once you got to the ground and that sort of thing. You know, there was, you know, people out and outside the ground sort of thing for autographs and stuff like that. But yeah, it wasn't anywhere near as as probably in your face as it is these days the guys these days with their exposure that they have these days. I mean, basically, the only exposure you had was game day sort of thing in those days and the rest of the social media stuff these days. Everyone's the amount of media coverage exposure that they get today and players are a bit more recognisable, I suppose. But in those days it was a bit more still oh you'd have to say it was still a bit amateurish compared to what it is like today. Because guys were still working and all those
0: sorts of things. Yeah, it was semi professional, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, it was only semi professional. So it was it was still working its way into a professional
0: game just one more on 93 so there is the story and i have asked other players this of the famous farting incident at halftime of the preliminary yeah, final yeah i've
2: heard that story <laughs> 100 times and to be honest i can't recall that incident whatsoever i just don't know where it came from but yeah i don't remember much about it at all to be honest
0: right so you, yeah you didn't hear it or smell it obviously
2: <laughs> no no i
0: did <laughs> uh, all good The next year wasn't a great year for the club. You finished 11th and missed the finals. Do you think that preliminary final loss was actually one of the reasons for the underperformance in the following years? Yeah, not sure.
2: I can't really. I got injured in 94. I ruptured a, a lateral ligament in my knee at training earlier in the year. Spent 10 weeks after an operation for that. And yeah, I don't know. I just didn't feel the same sort of group or intensity I don't know. I'm not sure about how it panned out but we just were obviously just weren't playing as well as the year before whether that's through guys being injured or the availability of players that year or things just didn't pan out or we just didn't play as well as we did the year before whether that anything to do with the year before not winning that game and that affecting it yeah I'm not sure who knows I'm not sure whether the personnel changed that much, but yeah, we just didn't play as well as we could have that year, and hence the result.
0: Have you ever thought about what it, what could have happened had you won the prelim and gotten into the grand final, and say you had a beaten Colton, have you ever thought about what that would have done for the club to have won a premiership in their third season? It was such a massive opportunity. Oh yeah, it would have been a, a massive boost to the club at the state, but it didn't happen.
2: So, uh, oh, you, you haven't really thought about it because once, you, once you've lost the preliminary final, it's never happened. So, you just think about the lost opportunity. But what it would have done other than that, yeah, haven't really put much thought into it. Yeah, fair enough.
0: And at the end of 1994, Graham Corns was moved on. What impact did that have on the playing group and, and also for you individually when, when relieved of his duties?
2: Oh, obviously, he'd been there from the start
0: and he'd nurtured the group to where it was
2: and guys like myself I was into my 30s at that point you know who was going to be the next coach and what they wanted going forward yeah it was all a bit up in the air to be honest until Shory came on board and then nothing personnel wise I don't think much changed but that I can recall but he brought a different tact to the whole group so yeah, it was it was it was a different feel after that. So obviously, yeah, I was only there for that first year, ninety five. That was my last
0: year, ninety five. At that time, the club felt they needed a Victorian influence on the group. Yeah, and, well, that was a yeah.
2: talk, wasn't it? that? Was a talk? Yeah, I remember. Need a Victorian coach to be successful in Victoria and beat those Victorian ties and all that sort of stuff. But that didn't didn't, uh, didn't
0: turn out that way. <laughs> wow.
2: Well, we didn't really need that sort of coach to be successful in 93. So I don't know why they thought, why that's after the media, whether it be Victorian media, but you have an average year after having a successful year. And then the talk goes, they start speculating about what the club needs to go to the next level. And then that's when all the talk comes. Someone will just say, oh, well, they needed a Victorian coach be able to be successful and then someone else picks up and it just snowballs from there so that was just snowballed from there and then whether you think the media has an influence on clubs or not, I think they do I think subconsciously board members or whoever feel the pressure of that and they feel they have to appease the public and if the public get wind from the media that that's what you need, well that's what we'll do, we'll go and get ourselves a Victorian coach and see how that goes and so lasted a couple of years And then Blighty stepped in And away they went
0: The Robert Shaw era If I may ask What sort of a coach was he? I know he only had The one season under him But what How did he conduct himself As a coach And did you have much he To do just, with him?
2: Yeah not a lot But he was just one of those coaches He just felt like he had to Impose himself on the group So to speak And he would Just be one of those coaches That would just Be Okay one minute and then blow up the next minute and tear strips off you for asking a question about something or questioning something you're doing or something like that and and you'd fly off the handle and that sort of thing so yeah i mean as far as technically and all that sort of thing i don't think it was any different than anything else we've been doing but it was more training it was a bit more tackling and a bit more physical stuff involved the training but nothing we probably had done in the past but there was just a bit more of it so I don't know whether there was too much different
0: brought to the club really yeah because it seems like how do I say people thought that the Adelaide Football Club were a bit soft and that you needed toughening up that's what the media was alluding to and Robert Shaw was meant to come in and sort of be a hard ass and toughen you up but I'm assuming that most of the playing group didn't really see it that way
2: well I wouldn't have thought we needed toughening up
0: media can say that
2: but in reality that's not the case the west coast Eagles and those teams were pretty pretty successful in those years and they had a big strong group but they also had you know very skillful players as well and i think it's a cyclical thing where you know you've just got good players come together at the one time and you know that proved to be the case later on you couldn't have said that the 97 98 team was any tougher and harder than the 93, 94 team, they wouldn't have been any tougher and harder. They just had a, a good blend of players, gelled well together, were skillful, but I wouldn't have said they were any tougher than the earlier teams. So it's just the way it pans out, the group you've got, the leadership you've got, and the direction you've, you're all pushed in the same direction. And obviously that's what Blighty bought.
0: Before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break here on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro... Established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there, moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust, Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now, and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favor and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, Diamato10, spelled D A M A T O one zero, you'll score yourself an extra ten percent off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. (sighs) Your final year, 95, that was one of the shining lights of that year was there was some up-and-coming players who ended up being champions of the club. So you played one season with Andrew McLeod and Tyson Edwards and two or three years with Mark Rashudo. At that time, I mean, I know Rashudo was from the get-go, he was fantastic, but... Did you have much to do with these players, not just on the field, but off the field? And also, at that time, did you ever foresee the players that they would end up being?
2: I reckon you could see, you know, Roo was a good kid. He was just a solid player, you know. There wasn't anything outstanding about his skill. But he was just a hard worker and, and just a talented, strong kid. Tyson Edwards was an amazing player for his side. And his skill, he was just very had good football now and he and he had good football skills to go with it. Andrew McLeod was one of those players that you could just see from the start that he was something because he was just and physically very strong for a guy his size. I mean he would have been I think he's only five eleven sort of thing. Yeah, no, he's a, not, not, a tall, big, not tall and, at and, all. and not tall. Wasn't extremely muscular, but I remember doing a drill one of Shawry bloody stupid drills where he'd throw a ball at the middle <laughs> and you just had to go and compete for the ball. I remember going two or three times in and, you know, against other guys, and then I was matched up there. And Andrew was only a kid, I think, at the time. He would have been in 17, 18. And going in and hipping, shouldering, and I thought, like, oh, shit. It's just one of those, he had one of those hard body, he's a hard body kid. And the next ball he was going to have a contest with, he was up against Tony Hawk. Same thing, ball gets thrown in the middle. Andrew comes from one side, Tony goes to and Andrew hit him straight up front and knocked him ass over. You know, this is a kid, he's just a kid at this stage in his first year, it was early in the season.
0: And Tony Hall's um, not small either.
2: No, and Tony Hall's a, a strong unit, but Andrew was just silky smooth movement, the way he ran, his skills, but people don't realise how strong he was. He was strong and just, just a beautiful reader of the play and and you can just see you can see that right day one sort of thing that what sort of player he could possibly be. Same with Ben Hart when he came to the side, yeah, just reliable, just hardly put a foot wrong. Ben and those were the guys. And then obviously Goodwin, Rennie played a lot of footy with Rennie, was marvelous player Rennie. So yeah, they had the group there, and then you had all the bit players. Kane Johnson was a super player as well. You know, people forget about the, the player Kane Johnson was. He was a magnificent player. So, yeah, they had a good young group that came through with a few experienced heads and and got it done, which was great to see.
0: At the end of 95, that that was your final season in the AFL. How did your time at Adelaide come to an end?
2: I was still doing pre-season for 96, and I hadn't been signed at that stage. We were in a cove training camp thing, and it was getting closer towards the season. I remember it was the, it might have been the Sunday. We had a bit of a Friday, got there on a Friday, had a bit of a training session, a big training session on the Saturday, and then we had a bit of a bit of an evening, a bit of a bonding session in the evening on a Saturday night. And then on Sunday morning, we went for up this big hill, and, and nothing, I still hadn't been signed at this stage. So we got to the top of the hill and we were supposed to go off and do all these exercises. It was playing in my mind a little bit. So anyway, I ran back down the hill and I said that Johnny Reed was there and sure was there. and I said, well, I'm going home. you can give me a call. you can tell me whether I'm in or out on Monday or you know let me know what's going on. So anyway I left and all the boys were still training and then yeah so that brought it to a head and yeah so I had a meeting with uh, Reedy on the Monday and uh,
0: thanks very much for your time. Service um, is not so required.
2: Service is not no, required which was fine they had a good young I'd probably run my race at that stage and, and they had a good young group coming through and you know blokes like Edwards and that where they were sending those guys into play the roles I'd been playing which was fine so I was yeah, yeah, quite content with where it was at the time
0: So you were quite happy just to end it there there wasn't any ill feeling towards the club at all?
2: No, no, not at all you'd had your time you helped to kind of establish the club in, activity and you could see that they had younger players coming through that that needed to get game time still felt like i could i could play it and contribute but it didn't surprise me that yeah it came to a head they decided that because i hadn't been signed and it was getting closer to the season you could see the writing on the wall so you just bring it to a head you're either i'm either in or i'm out so yeah i, was, I had no real feelings towards the club that was that was fine
0: And I mean that season '96, the club struggled, and then Malcolm Blight comes in. So 1997 and 1998 under Malcolm Blight, they won two premierships. How did you feel to see that success so soon after your time at the club had ended? Happy for the club and proud, or was there a sense of envy not having been part of it?
3: So there's nothing left now but to celebrate. Are home. It's ticking away. They've done what we thought was impossible. They've been to Perth, to Melbourne, to Sydney, to Melbourne, and they've come back and it win. They are a super football team. No question. It's endorsed its free today.
2: Oh, of course, you sit there and you look at it and you think, geez, that would have been nice to be part of that, but it moved on. I'd been out of it for two years by that time, and, and you could see the team they had. It was, yeah, it was a fantastic team, and they'd obviously a great finals team in those two years. They were, well, as the system was, it, I think it was 97 that they kind of Got the benefits of the vinyl system they had at the time. Really happy for the boys, happy for the lads caught up with a few of them in town afterwards, and it was good to crowd them what they achieved. You'd been part of the early development, I suppose, of the club.
0: That core group of say the early nineties. Do you still keep in touch with with those early crows? You know, your McDermott and McGuinness and Jarman and these sort of players. Do you all sort of still keep in touch at all?
2: Oh, not a lot. A few times a year when you try to catch up. You, know, you usually have a lunch every now and then. You know, you'll see each other at the footy or whatever, You know, so but not directly, not a lot.
0: And as we are about to close up now, I've got three last questions for you. In your AFL career, who's the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who's the best coach you ever played under and why?
2: Best player i played with? Well... Oh I'd have to go back To the start of my Sanford career I played with Johnny Flatton And he was a mate He was
0: just a freak Yeah Brownlow medalist well,
2: Brownlow medalist McGarry medalist And only two One or two players To be able to do that You know Multiple premierships it's just He was a freakish player Look I played with A lot of great players Mods and You know Rennie And all those players. To get play with, to play with, play with some marvelous players, even back to the Hawthorne days, the guys you played with back then, playing play with the likes of Dippy and a another Brownlow medalist, played a lot of footy with him at Hawthorne And like I said, played with players like Gary Abrahams, Senior, and Dermot Brereton. When I look at my career as it was, I played with a, a lot of amazing players that went on and did amazing things. I've always I've never really praise too much the players I played against and said oh right he was the best player I ever played but over my time I probably was the hardest player to play your game be successful against and he was an amazing player himself but he also stopped you from being as a defender I tried to run off and do a lot of things but as a player I played on probably one of the most difficult players to play on was probably Wenger Gavin was just an amazing kid that I played against in the sand pool as a 16-year-old. And he was good enough then. But then to play games against him at AFL level when he was older. And the year he won the Brownlow medal, he was only like 21 or something. But then, yeah, so played quite a bit of footy. And he was probably, I'd say, one of the toughest. No one's easy to play against, but he probably stood out. As far as coaches, I had a lot of a lot of good coaches. Like I said, you know, Alan Jeans. I never got coached by him directly, but you could see, you know, I was in fortunate enough to be in a few meetings they had when they were preparing for grand finals. To be in the room with him as he's addressing the players and preparing them for grand finals and to, for him to listen to him to come and talk to young kids about his perspective of the game and you know his philosophy of we've got it they've got it the ball's in dispute still rings true today really when you consider the stats they take about contested footy and uncontested and pressure acts and things like that it all goes back to the the same sort of philosophy of uh, as genji used to put it but had a lot of good coaches Maher with my reserves coach at Hawthorne, then I had Cowboy Neil, then Alan Stewart, Corny Neil Curley. So, whereas one never probably stood out above the other, you know, Jeansy was obviously one of the best, but all cages bring up a different, different message, or a different philosophy, or a different way of doing things, but it, it takes up more of them. I can't say that I had a coach that I really didn't enjoy, except for probably my last coach, at the Crows. But that was probably more where I was at with my football rather than the coach. But anyway, they were my coaches. And to be, as I said, to be part of that Hawthorn era as it was building, and to listen to Z. Also, he wasn't such as much my coach as having a bit to do with him establishing himself as a senior coach when. Alistair Clarkson came to Central Districts, I was an assistant with him. And you could see his demeanour and his delivery and the way he presented the game to everybody, philosophies, clear and precise instructions. And as I said, his delivery and the way he spoke about the game and everything surrounding the game as well, preparing people. You could see he was headed for bigger and better things.
0: Did you have much to do with him directly, Alistair Clarkson?
2: Oh, when he was there, so I was, that was my, yeah, so I went straight into assistant coaching with him in his, in his years at Central's, yes, so, there was a few of us there, Roy and Simon Lewis, and a few of us there were his assistant coaches, yeah, you can see he had something, so, but anyway, that's all my coaches in a nutshell, without actually, hard to pick one, yeah, but they're all, like I said, they all be something different to the table.
0: Well, Scott Lee, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast. I really do appreciate your time and I wish you all the best with everything you're doing now and also with family. Thank you very much.
2: No worries, Daniel. All the best.
0: Good to talk to you. And that is a wrap for another episode. I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. And I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.